This week, Malincrot Actar plaintiffs pursue relief from absolute stay, CBL and Preet file for Chapter 11, Garrett debtors seek deadline for Honeywell to estimate indemnification claims, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. Later, senior reporter James Holloway and distressed debt legal analyst Kevin Eckhart will give us an overview of cram-ups with a particular focus on Garrett Motion. It is Sunday, November 8th. The so-called Akthar plaintiffs, parties who commenced class action antitrust suits in connection with Akthar Gel before the Mellencrot bankruptcy, filed a motion in the Chapter 11 cases on Wednesday seeking relief from the automatic stay. The movements argued that they should be granted stay relief against debtor defendants Mallincrot PLC and Mallincrot ARD LLC because the defendants are, quote, actively engaged in ongoing violations of the federal and state antitrust laws, federal RICO, and the consumer fraud laws of various states. The motion states that the Akhtar plaintiff's claims, quote, exceed $10 billion, echoing remarks made by counsel for the city of Rockford, Illinois, at Mallincrot's first day hearing in connection with Rockford's Akhtar antitrust litigation claim. The Akhtar plaintiffs say that their claims represent the largest group of unsecured creditors who have not signed the RSA. The Akhtar plaintiffs say that despite making up the largest non-RSA unsecured creditor constituency, they, quote, were completely shut out from the RSA and related negotiations. The motion adds that relief from the automatic stay would allow the movements to, quote, pursue changes to the debtor-defendant Akhtar business practices, as well as pursue appropriate damages against the debtor defendants and their non-debtor co-defendants, Express Scripts Inc., or ESI, and United Biosource. On Friday morning, Cole Schatz and Aiken Gump, as proposed counsel to the official committee of opioid-related claimants, filed the committee's first Rule 2019 statement, outlining certain of the group's holdings of unliquidated unsecured claims. The seven-member committee was appointed by the UST on October 27th. The filing states that, quote, while the members are all private individuals and corporations, a significant number of opioid plaintiffs are government entities, which, based on the U.S. trustees' longstanding practice, are not permitted to be appointed to official committees. The company also released third quarter 2020 earnings on Tuesday, reporting net sales in the quarter of $698.3 million, a year-over-year decrease of $45.4 million, or 6.1%. Adjusted EBITDA, as reported by the company, was $305.4 million, down 2.7% year-over-year. The five-member Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, in addition, selected Alvarez and Marcel and Dundon Advisors as financial advisors and Molis as investment bankers, according to sources. We also saw two real estate concerns, CBL and Preet, filed last week. The Philadelphia-based mall owner-operator Preet, structured as a real estate investment trust, filed for Chapter 11 on, no- on November 1st, reporting $2.38 billion in assets and $2 billion in liabilities. The company attributes the bankruptcy filing to the COVID-19 pandemic, which resulted in acute and devastating impacts on many of its mall tenants and retail customers. In his first day declaration, CFO Mario Ventresca de- detailed how the company engaged with its key stakeholders to negotiate a global resolution that would account for the company's new and unanticipated financial constraints in a manner designed to provide much-needed liquidity to allow the company additional time to navigate the uncertain months ahead. After extensive pre-petition negotiations with its lenders, the debtors obtained nearly unanimous lender consent on an RSA. However, one lender, Strategic Value Partners, or SVP, which purchased a 5% interest in the debt only weeks ago at a significant discount, refused to agree to the restructuring, signaling instead an attempt to contest the confirmation of the debtor's plan, state the debtors. 
The RSA provides for a repayment, restructuring, or satisfaction of the debtor's term revolving and bridge loans, as well as the repayment of certain specified derivatives. The primary plan components are 1. Exit financing consisting of a first lien $150 million revolving facility, a first lien $600 million term loan facility, and a $313 million second lien term facility. 2. Reinstatement of secured property level debt. 3. Assumption of restatement of general unsecured debt payable in the ordinary course of business. 4. Reinstatement of specified derivatives or repayment via incremental loans. And five, the retention of equity in the reorganized pre. Lender SVP, however, favored an alternative proposal where 100% of reorganized equity, subject to dilution, would have been distributed to unsecured lenders. Preet's board of trustees rejected this proposal as involving material risks in lacking the support of the debtor's key, key lender group, necessitating, quote, a cram-down fight and providing, quote, little to no recovery to general unsecured creditors and existing equity. Up until hours prior to the filing, the debtors continued negotiations with SVP, focusing on the provisions of the exit financing agreements, but reached an impasse after, quote, SVP continued to press for certain rights that would have transferred inappropriate and off-market consent rights to SVP in light of its relatively small debt position. The debtors obtained their requested first-day relief at a hearing before Judge Karen B. Owens on Tuesday. In addition to granting the debtor's request for cash collateral use on an interim basis, Judge Owens approved Preet's proposed expedited confirmation timeline and scheduled a combined hearing on disclosure statement approval and plan confirmation for November 24th. CBL and Associates filed for Chapter 11 on Monday to implement an August 18th restructuring support agreement backed by an ad hoc group of unsecured note holders. The RSA has support of 62% of unsecured note holders. However, it does not have the support of the debtor's senior secured term lenders who have rejected restructuring proposals, accelerated approximately $1.1 billion in obligations based on non-monetary defaults, and on October 28th, commenced efforts to exercise remedies, including taking control of 22 non-debtor property-level entities whose equity was pledged as security for the loans and directing tenants to pay rent directly to Wells Fargo as the term loan agent. The debtors on Monday filed in the bankruptcy court a complaint for declaratory relief, injunctive relief and damages, and a related request for a temporary restraining order against Wells Fargo to put a halt to these collection efforts, which Judge David Jones granted without a hearing. The temporary restraining order expires November 16th. Under the RSA, note holders would receive $49.6 million in cash, $500 million in new secured notes, and 90% of pre-dilution reorganized equity. Holders of REIT preferred stock and exist, existing equity would receive another 10% of pre-dilution reorganized equity and warrants for another 20% of reorganized equity. Approximately $2 billion in debt at the company's non-debtor property-owning subsidiaries remains current and would be unaffected by the filing. At the first day hearing on Monday, Judge David Jones granted the debtors requested first day relief, including their request for authority to use secured lenders' cash collateral for the operation of the company's 107 retail properties on an uncontested basis. The dispute between the debtors and their senior secured term loan lenders looms on the horizon but received only brief attention at the first day hearing. Judge Jones indicated to the parties at the beginning of the hearing that he wanted to avoid airing the dispute in public at this time.
On Monday, the Garrett Motion Debtors filed a motion to establish procedures and a timeline to estimate the maximum amount of Honeywell International's disputed asbestos indemnification and tax matters claims, quote, for purposes of allowance and establishing a reserve under a plan of reorganization. By the motion, the debtors asked the court to enter an order requiring Honeywell to file proofs of claim and provide, quote, detailed supporting information and calculations underlying Honeywell's projected stream of future payments allegedly payable by the debtors by December 18th. The debtors would then seek, quote, threshold determinations on two issues, quote, on an expedited basis, namely whether the indemnity and tax claims must be discounted to present value as of the petition date at a risk-adjusted rate, and whether Honeywell's indemnity and tax claims are solely against the Garrett ASA SCO debtors. Under the debtors' proposed schedule, hearings on both issues would be held by February 8th, 2021. The debtors also assert that the alternative plan construct agreed to between Honeywell, Centerbridge, Oak Tree, and a group of shareholders, under which Honeywell would receive $1.45 billion over 14 years, fails to account for the need to discount Honeywell's claims to reflect this risk of non-performance. According to the debtors, the settlement amount agreed to by the alternative plan sponsors, quote, is greater than the allowable amount of Honeywell's claim and a gross exaggeration of any reasonable litigated outcome or even an arm's length and properly informed settlement of those claims. On Tuesday, Honeywell International filed a 13D indicating that it now owns approximately 3.19% of Garrett Debtor's outstanding common stock, further bolstering the majority of shareholders supporting the alternative plan, proposed, as I said, by Honeywell, Cetrabridge, Oak Tree, and an ad hoc group of shareholders. Those are represented by Jones Day. With more than 97% of the votes counted, new Progressive Party candidate Pedro Pierluisi has a 16,000-vote lead and is expected to prevail in Puerto Rico's governor's race. During Tuesday's election, voters also re-elected resident Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez to another four-year term and expressed support for statehood in a political status referendum. After declaring victory on election night, Pierluisi outlined four, quote, principal battles he expects to have with the Promesa Oversight Board. The need to provide Commonwealth government workers with fair pay, protecting government pension beneficiaries and the University of Puerto Rico from further budget cuts, and strengthening the finances of Puerto Rico's municipal governments so that they can continue to provide essential services. Pierre Lucy also said that he would ensure that, that the Commonwealth could afford to pay the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment that is being ne- renegotiated. In a Wednesday order, Judge Laura Taylor Swain denied without prejudice a request by the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors to terminate the Rule 1919 motion seeking approval of the settlements reflected in the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority Restructuring Support Agreement while permitting the UCC to renew its request after April 21, 2021. In rejecting the underlying premise of the UCC's motion, Judge Swain finds it, quote, inappropriate to pronounce dead what the parties to the RSA have not themselves terminated or rejected, and concludes that the court does have jurisdiction of the motion. The court declines to, quote, disrupt the 1919 motion because, quote, the parties continue to consider the underlying agreement and potential modifications to it, and the underlying RSA has not been terminated. On Wednesday, Promisa Oversight Board member Justin Peterson said that he favored an immediate return to mediation following last week's public meeting in which the Oversight Board failed to maintain a quorum to vote on a resolution authorizing a return to negotiations with an eye toward developing a proposed plan of adjustment. Peterson said that he thought he saw no reason to vote on another resolution relating to the proposed plan following its public release last week and that he supports an immediate resumption of mediation. 
Top red stories last week were breaking. Hertz seeks approval of new non-debtor ABS facility from Apollo to finance 2021 fleet purchases. Sea drill loan trades pick up before expected Chapter 11 filing. New $85 million debt package offered. GIEK can participate in debt for equity swap, has not sold exposure. And breaking, Community Health announces cash tender offers for up to $400 million in notes. Next, here is Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, folks, and hello, everyone, and welcome back. This week, just like last week, even just about the same amount of it. Monday, November 9th, Trandoshan's cash tender expires. There's an omnibus hearing in Diamond Offshore, sale hearing in JCPenney, and an emergency hearing in Calfrac. And if you're really an adrenaline junkie, there's also earnings from Clear Channel, Party City, Peabody, and Occidental Petroleum, among others. Tuesday, November 10th, DS hearing and an auction in Chesapeake. They're selling something, obviously, and a DS hearing in Oasis Petroleum. And you know, in these EMP cases, been a lot of interest in the whole running with the land issue, which can't but strike a distant power cord of memory of the late, great Edward Van Halen of the eponymous California hair metal era band Van Halen, Running With the Devil being the first song on their first album, which was called Van Halen 1. How about that? Great guitar player. I can still remember where I was when I first heard Eruption. It's about 11 o'clock at night. I was in a canoe on a lake in South Georgia, and I was fishing. And while I certainly admired Eddie's artistry, who wouldn't, after all, can't say I was a huge aficionado, California music from the Beach Boys through Eddie and even beyond, always just a bit too lighthearted and hedonistic, something like that for me. You know, the Southern people always prefer it kind of grim and tragic, you know, death and that sort of thing. Anyhow, there's also earnings today, Aircap, Excella, and Ambac. Wednesday, November 11th, it's Armistice Day or Veterans Day as it's known here, holiday, so markets and courts are closed, but they're open again on Thursday, November 12th, DS hearing in 24-hour fitness, confirmation hearing in tailored brands, and earnings are back with Calfrac, Transdime, Multiplan, and Talon. And Friday, November the 13th, always a date of ill omen. And 12, at least 12, not 13, though, remakes of Jason working through his abandonment issues. I don't know how that franchise, even with the best marketing, could possibly compete with what we got going on today, which would be a sale hearing in Chesapeake and a preliminary injunction hearing in CBL. Boy, you can't beat that, not even with a warring blender. And that's all from me for now, but I will be back, just like Friday the 13th. And now here's Jim and Kevin on Crime Ups. And hello, y'all. It's me again, but you're here not for me, but from a friend and colleague, Kevin Eckert. In his accumulated years of legal expertise, he told me that today we were talking about Crime Ups, and initially I thought he meant some obscure German techno band. Kevin, being a cultured gentleman who would know of such things, but as usual, I was wrong. It's about something done in the courthouse. Not sure how much fun it sounds, but Kevin, can you please tell me about this new trend of scene your secured lenders being crammed up in recent Chapter 11 filings? Well, Jim, we've got three big uh, recent Chapter 11s where senior secured lenders may end up on the outside looking in while junior note holders control the case. Um, Garrett Motion, which is sort of a special circumstance we'll get to in a sec, Malincrot, and just last Sunday, CBL and Associates. Each of these cases may end up involving what we call a cram-up, uh, which is not an obscure German techno band. I, of course, know all of those. Um, it's a situation where junior creditors and the debtor get together and force their plan on a senior class by rendering them, quote, unimpaired under the code. 
if a class is unimpaired by a plan, it doesn't get to vote. The code deems the class to have accepted the plan, uh, whether and, and whether the debtors and the note holders can get away with this against the senior lender's wishes depends on the meaning of unimpaired, uh, which seems simple, but has triggered a whole bunch. Can you tell me about the RSAs? Uh, Garrett Motion seems to be the biggest one right now. This isn't judging by readership numbers. It's the big show right now uh, and distressed. It's also a little bit different than the other two in that right now the senior lenders are on board with the debtor's RSA and proposed plan, which would see the senior lenders get paid their principal and interest at the non-default contract rate. Now, that's generally what debtors consider unimpaired. The senior lenders have also made a $200 million dip loan, though that was originally $250 million before those alternative plan sponsors, Centerbridge, Oak Tree, Honeywell, and a group of big shareholders started kicking up dust. What's more, the alternative plan sponsors on Monday filed a revised proposed alternative plan construct that offers senior lenders a sweetener to defect to their side and away from the debtors and the note holders. That is, they've offered to pay full payment of principal and interest plus payment of a $15 million make-hole premium, which the debtors have not offered. The alternative plan group has also offered to pay off the dip on friendly terms so it could be easy for the senior lenders to switch sides. In Malincrot, the situation is a bit more clear-cut. The debtors have entered into an RSA with unsecured note holders and settlements with opioid and ACTHAR litigation claimants. Under the plan construct from that RSA, senior lenders' claims would be reinstated rather than paid in full. Uh, that's another way to try and call a senior creditor unimpaired to keep them from voting. The senior lenders I've spoken with aren't too happy about this, and they plan on seeking payment of a sizable make-hole premium and perhaps interest at the contract default rate rather than the, the contract non-default rate. That's how unhappy senior lenders tend to view unimpaired. Uh, in other words, getting every dollar they would have gotten if the debtors had defaulted and the debt was accelerated on the petition date. Finally, in CBL, we already have open warfare between the senior lenders and the RSA parties. Back in August, the debtors entered into an RSA with note holders that would give them the lion's share of reorganized equity. And then the debtors and note holders tried to get the senior term lenders with Wells Fargo as agent on board for a big consensus deal. Unfortunately, they failed to do so. And on October 28th, just last week, Wells Fargo attempted to nuke the debtors from orbit by sending letters to hundreds of tenants telling them to pay rent directly to Wells rather than the debtors. Wells also tried to use proxy powers on pledged equity to replace the management of certain property-owning subsidiaries, which would allow Wells to take control of about 22 of the debtors' 107 properties. The debtors reacted by filing on Sunday and immediately sued Wells. Um, first of all, they're seeking damages. They claim they were not in default under the credit agreement, so Wells couldn't exercise these remedies. And they've also asked for injunctive relief and a temporary restraining order barring Wells from moving forward on these collection efforts against the property subs, some of which have not filed and thus are not covered by the automatic stay. In other words, CBL is trying as hard as they can to, as in previous REIT cases, keep the operating and the property-owning subsidiaries out of the case while also preventing Wells from trying to collect from those subsidiaries. Judge Jones granted a temporary restraining order uh, virtually immediately, putting off Wells Fargo's collection efforts until November 16th. 
but it looks like there will be some nasty litigation over this. In fact, at the first day hearing, Judge Jones told the senior lenders and the debtor um, not to fight it out in open court that day and to save it for another day, um, basically saying we don't want this on the public record right now. The debtors and note holders at that hearing though, uh, called Wells' actions shocking and unprecedented in a case of this size. So there's a lot of nasty rhetoric going back and forth. Wells, as agent, again, for the senior lenders, has argued that uh, certain of the companies that did file cannot file for bankruptcy and that they are entitled to payment of rents from those 22 properties. So it's, it's looking like that one's going to be nasty and we can anticipate that there will be a proposal in that case so the debtors haven't articulated it to cram up the senior lenders by, again, uh, giving them the equivalent of what the debtors consider unimpaired treatment, payment of principal and interest and not make holes and, and other rights. Well, I guess it seems fair for a debtor to call lender unimpaired if they're getting paid principal and interest at the contract rate in full or having their claims reinstated in full. Am I missing something here? Yeah, well, Jim, obviously, in most cases, it's uh, it's kind of a bonus for lenders to get paid in full or have their debt reinstated in full and get their interest. Um, but obviously, it's a little more complicated under the bankruptcy code, and it's all in the meaning of the term unimpaired. The code defines unimpaired somewhat ambiguously. A creditor is unimpaired if the plan, quote, leaves unaltered the legal, equitable, and contractual rights to which such claim or interest entitles the holder of such claim or interest. Uh, generally, debtors view this as requiring reinstatement or payment in full of principal and interest at the contract rate, um, non-default rate. Lenders, however, view make-whole premiums and default interest as part of their contractual rights that must be respected if they are to be denied the right to vote. So we've had a lot of litigation recently over whether make-whole premiums and default post-petition interest claims are allowable under the code. If those claims are allowable under the code and they are not provided for under the plan, then the plan seems to be impairing those claims. If those kind of claims are not enforceable under the code and disallowed, then courts have found that denying them in a plan is not impairment because it's the code terms that do the impairing rather than the plan itself. Uh, the big issue for make-whole premiums is whether they qualify as unmatured interest, which is unenforceable under the code. And again, if it's unenforceable, uh, a debtor not providing for it in the plan is not impairment under the plan. Most courts have found that make-whole premiums are a way of calculating and, and uh, in advance and liquidating unmatured interest and thus make whole claims are not allowable and need not be paid in order to render a lender unimpaired. Uh, that really started with the Second Circuit's big make whole decision in the Momentive case, and the Fifth Circuit followed somewhat more ambiguously in the Ultra Petroleum case. But the issue is not fully resolved. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, Judge Isger, in that Ultra case where the, the Fifth Circuit had reversed him and sent it back down to him um, denying the make whole, entered a new decision finding that the particular make-whole provision in that case did not qualify as unmatured interest, but liquidated damages and thus could be allowed. So for you keeping at home, um, Judge Isger decided the make-whole was allowable. The Fifth Circuit told him it wasn't, sent it back to him, and now he's decided it's allowable again. Um, and of course, every lender says their credit agreement's make-whole provision has been crafted to avoid the momentive and ultra decisions so that they can try to distinguish those. So there's still a lot of, of litigation to be done over this issue and, and even contract drafting. 
and we can expect to see it raised again in these three cases, if only for leverage purposes, if the senior lenders end up on the wrong side of the debtors. Well, Kevin, thank you kindly, and we shall certainly see what happens because uh, more than three is a collection after all. And that's all for us this week. Thank you, and back to young Connor in New York for the parting glass. Good night, and joy be with you all. Thank you, and thank you listeners for again tuning into this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, our podcasts can be found on the reorg.com media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. See you in a week.